Shave it. Yeah. This is the woman with hair down to her ass. No, I cut it. I cut it. I cut it after it almost killed me. You cut it after? Where is it now? The hair? Well, I mean, I'm a weirdo, so it's technically in a baggie in my art studio. No, I meant the the hair that's still on your head. How long is it now? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you never know. It might come in useful for an art project. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. Hey, guys. You're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. Today, we've got a French femme fatale painter and a woman who used corn to earn her Nobel Prize. Okay. I mean, I know corn is something that is heavily subsidized here in the States, and I think we do, like, a lot with it. You know, yeah, go go ahead and and guess exactly what she did with the corn. Oh, shoot. Um, I mean, I think there's biofuel from it. And then obviously like high fructose corn syrup. Uh, that's that's it. That's all I got for potential scientific contributions. You're way off. G- GMOs? Nope. Sada? Nope. I got nothing. Corn related aside from corn with a K and a backwards R. What kind of science involves that? Yeah, I was about to say that is not noble. No. Prize winning no. science. No. Or music. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Corn. Sorry, Jonathan Davis. Oh, no. I know you're a diehard listener of our little obscure podcast. <laughs> Didn't mean to break your heart. Say hi to Brian for me. Oh, God. We're glad he's back in the band. I like, I might have listened to him a little bit in high school, maybe. 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 God, if you guys could see some of the pictures of her in in high school and how many times she wore a corn shirt. Yo, that is some dirty best friend blackmail. No one needs to see anyone in their high school version of themselves. I... All right. We happen to be the type of people who did not peak in high school, obviously. Nope. And we're doing much better now. <laughs> okay? I came across my old middle school best friend before I met you. She's like married now with two kids. Yeah. I mean, we're almost 30. It happens. I know. It's just, it's weird. I think now, though, it's weird that, I don't know. I feel like it's weird on our end that we... We're actively opting to have personal, professional success rather than pursuing traditional family roles. That one. Within our lives. That one. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I feel kind of snotty sometimes. It's like, no, I don't want kids. Like, I want a museum solo show. Like, I'm going to be honest. Like, that's my art ego, like, flaring up real hard. But, like, that's what I'm working towards. That's the goal. <laughs> yeah. Like, I might be really old when that happens, but that's fine. I don't want children. Yeah. I mean, kudos. Raising a human. That's a lot of work. Well, that's something that we have in common with, uh, with my scientist, Eleanor McClintock. And you know what? Actually, in a weird way, we have in common with the artist I'll be covering later, who made a very distinct choice with motherhood and being an artist, which, honestly, you should not have to choose between. But back in the 60s, it was a little different. So what's the scoop? 
on your scientist. Okay, so I said Eleanor because that's the name she was born with. Uh, Eleanor McClintock, June 16, 1902, in Hartford, Connecticut. Her childhood, dad was a physician, mom was a well-known pianist, poet, and painter, and then Barbara, we're going to call her Barbara, uh, is the second youngest of four children. So it was Mignon, like the steak, Tom, Barbara, and Marjorie. And basically the reason why her name changed was because she was 18 months old and her parents were like, Yo, Eleanor is too feminine and delicate of a name for this child. And then they switched to Barbara. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So growing up, she would play by herself often and was just overall very independent. And she would refer to this part of herself as, quote, self-contained. Okay. I feel like everything you're about to tell me just in the lead up, I'm just going to be thinking of, like, how does this reference corn (laughs) at a Nobel Prize? (laughs) (laughs) Da-da-da. Yeah. Okay. All right, self-contained. I, too, enjoy my own company. I can feel that. So things were kind of dicey for her family financially. They sent her, in response to that, to live with her aunt and uncle in Massachusetts when she was three until she had to start school when she was six. So, um, Hmm. like, her love for cars came from her time with her uncle. Um, She's very – she learned how to be basically a tiny adult, really. And when she was ready to go back to school, she returned back to her immediate family, and they all moved to New York in Brooklyn, 1908. Okay. So her relationship with her parents growing up, both of them were supportive in their own right. So if she wanted to learn ice skating, they would buy her the best equipment and then allow her to skip school some days to focus on that, depending on the weather, like if it allowed it. Yeah. She was very close to dad. So when she told her dad that one of her teachers upset her because her teacher was quote, spiritually repulsive, unquote. <laughs> I'd be like, yo, you're in second grade. Where'd you learn those yeah. words? <laughs> also, um, nice vocabulary. Yeah. No, it's great. He basically pulled her out of school and got her a tutor, like a at-home tutor. He was like, she doesn't like her teacher. It's not going to happen. I, we really should do a breakdown with everyone we've covered because there have been so many people we featured who one of the strong things in their lives was usually their dad emphasizing their education. It's really important. Yeah, for sure. So things like that going above and beyond, like, I will get you a tutor. Like, I will make sure you can enroll in college. But also people who have been like, no, I've actually started a school for girls. Yeah, I think we've had three of those. Yeah. <laughs> There's been a few of them. There was, I've had one or two on my end, and you've had a few on yours. Yeah. So that's that's one thing I kind of didn't expect to be kind of a continual characteristic. Is that some dads actually thought of their daughters as people instead of commodities. but. Yeah. Yeah. So things were great with dad. Uh, Things were kind of rocky with mom. Um, But, you know, she was still kind of supportive. So when the neighbor, like an adult neighbor, not even like a child neighbor, saw Barbara playing sports outside and told her that, quote, it was time to learn how to do the things that girls do. um, Her mom called the neighbor later that night and told her to never speak to her child like that again. Okay. Good. No, it's great. Her mom was like helping her out and supporting her. She hoped that Maybe she'd grow out of it, that this weirdness, the self-containedness was a like a phase. But of course she didn't change. She found science in high school and just got weirder. Mom was super nervous that she would never become a proper lady and was even concerned that she would end up as a professor at the university. Oh, I just imagine her mom just laying in bed trying to fall asleep. Just, oh, what if she gets tenure track? I just, I can't. I can't. <laughs> it's not the life I want for my daughter. It was a lot of like, look, I love you. I know you're weird, but if you go to college, you will become unmarriageable. And I have to say no to you going to college. And that was a real conversation she had with Barbara. 
That doesn't surprise me. I mean, usually it was either you're not worth it to go to college or, yeah, you can go to college because you're usually at that point upper middle class Mm -hmm. and it's go to college and find a husband. Basically, yeah. That was mom's ruling when Barbara graduated high school in 1918 and told her parents, I want to go to Cornell. Look, I don't know about you, but if I told my parents that I was accepted into an Ivy League university, that would have been it. Had she been accepted? I mean, I imagine so. Okay. I just, like, I'm, I know... Like, you've covered previous scientists who, and even up to the 1940s and 50s, still weren't accepting women for college. They let them sit in, but no. Uh, Cornell. Okay. And, you know, she spent, like, all summer thinking she would never go to college, um, but she didn't suddenly become a proper lady because that's not realistic. So she was still reading and doing her own thing. And then dad, days before the semester started, was like, pack up your shit, you're going to college. Oh, I love it. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) It's kind of like, don't tell your mom until the day of. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'll tell her we're going out for ice cream and then come back the next day without you. (laughs) Oh, my God. It It was pretty great. And when she got there, she was at home there. She was doing great academically. She picked up jazz. She was voted the president of the women's freshman class. Hmm. She took any and all courses she could take. She went for philosophy because that's what women did at the time. You went for philosophy. But she picked up like a genetics course just because she could and was like, I love this. And her professor of genetics actually called her like later and was like, please continue on with genetics. Like, get out of philosophy. Mm-hmm. And she considered that phone call, like, basically the universe going, do this. This is where you belong. Mm-hmm. She continued on her graduate studies also at Cornell. It was in genetics, but at Cornell, women weren't allowed to study genetics, which I don't understand. So she was forced actually into the botany program, majoring in cytology with a minor in genetics and zoology. So both her master's and PhD are technically in botany, and she used corn to do it. So do you know what cytology is? No, no, I don't. Yeah, there's some science. Is that the, the cytology where you freeze people in the hopes that you can thaw them out? No. And like, okay. No. <laughs> uh, I tried. I tried, everyone. So cytology is actually just the study of cells. Oh, that is way less fun <laughs> than my answer. She studied plant cells, specifically the cells of maize corn. And, of course, what kind of scientist would she be if she didn't do some groundbreaking research during her college years? Let me explain. Do you remember when we were middle school and we had to look at pieces of plants under the microscope, like onions and shit? Yes. And we even got to do a, a worm and look at all chambers of its multiple hearts. Oh, that's cool. I never got to do the worm. Yeah. That was the first middle school I was at. It had a much... It was a better funded public school system. That's fair. We looked at plant cells because we had to understand the basics of eukaryotic cells. So eukaryotic cells as kind of a refresher. So eukaryotic versus prokaryotic. Those are the two kinds. Prokaryotics don't have nuclei. Eukaryotics do. And plants and animals, that's the kind of cells that we have. That's what we share. Plants are obviously simpler. But because we were still understanding what cells were, and this was decades before people even knew what DNA was, she was working on understanding the cell's prime components and what they were for, because that could be applied to human cells. Okay. All right. Yeah. So looking at kind of the basic 
preliminary structures and characteristics mm-hmm. of these plant cells and seeing what can be scaled up to a much more complex level as, like, human cells. Correct. And, like, you, I mean, there are some, okay. like, differences. You know, we don't have a chloroplast. I mean, I eat enough spinach, so I might. You might have chloroplast. <laughs> and I love being out in the sun. <laughs> you going to start turning green. <laughs> I get wilty if I don't have enough tea, especially in the <laughs> evening. <laughs> She, I mean, she, when she was there, she knocked her studies out of the park. She found a better way to look at plant cells. Specifically, we learn more from them while they're reproducing. Um, so up until then, we were looking at root ends. And she was like, yo, why aren't we looking at the male's microspore? Which is just words, fancy words for why aren't we looking at the sperm of the male plant? Yeah. You know, and also, why aren't we staining them with one chemical called carmine so we can see them clear in the microscope? Because, I mean, you should be staining your specimens anyway. Like, how else are you supposed to see what's going on? And this was during her time as a PhD student. So when she graduated in 1927 and became an instructor at Cornell because women were professors at Cornell, she discovered Hmm. all 10 of the maize plant's chromosomes. They couldn't really find them all before that. And then she found the linkage groups regarding their traits. So, like, which genes are linked to which other genes in the chromosome and will always be linked that way. I'm going to give you a quick rundown. Do you remember anything about eukaryotic cells and their replication processes? <laughs> That's what I thought. Oh, guys. Guys, she's so cute. <laughs> That's what you I have thought. so much faith in me. <laughs> I don't know. We were in the same class. I... <laughs> Okay, so what, um, and you know what, my memory's a little fuzzy. Can you just, you know, kind of give me a few refreshers? <laughs> so the replication process of regular cells is called mitosis. And basically beings have chromosomes, right? Do you know what chromosomes are? They look like tiny DNA yeah. worms wound up tightly. They're just worms. They're not like the X. They're just the little, they look funky. Uh-huh. When it's time for a cell to make a copy of itself, they basically unravel, copy themselves with the help of proteins in the body. And then that creates that X shape that you remember. And then the X shape breaks into two completely identical DNA worms. The original copy goes to one side of the cell. The replication of it, or the sister chromatid, goes to the other side. And then the cell wall closes in on itself, creating a number H shape or an infinity symbol until they break off and become two completely identical cells. Right? Okay. the quickest, dirtiest way. Anyone has ever explained cell mitosis, but that's like, essentially, if your skin was healing and creating new skin cells. So when it comes to reproduction, though, the gametes, or the sperm cells, do something called meiosis, which it kind of follows that same format, but instead of two identical cells, you get four daughter cells, so not sister cells, daughter cells, with half the amount of chromosomes of the parent cell. And those little cells go hang out with the daughter cells of the second organism over there, And then they make a baby. Mm -hmm. The halving of those chromosomes is what creates genetic variation in our offspring. Years following Barbara's identification of the 10 chromosomes involved, countless more discoveries about corns, which, again, could be applied to our own cells. Okay. So she could take those underlying principles and apply them to kind of human cellular mechanics. So there's this quote from this 1992 biography written by Nina Fedorov, a writer for the American Philosophical Society. It's long, but it'll give you an idea of what Barbara did while she was at Cornell, okay? Okay. All right. 
Among the most important of her discoveries during the next few years, sometimes made alone, sometimes together with others, were that sister chromatids also exhibit genetic and cytological crossing over, that genes can be physically localized on the chromosomes, and non-homologous chromosome pairing has genetic consequences, that the formation of ring-shaped chromosomes accounts for certain types of phenotypic variegation, that the centromere is divisible, that broken chromosomes can undergo repeated cycles of fusion and breakage, and that a particular chromosomal site, the nucleus organizer region, or the NOR, is essential to the development of the nucleus, or the nucleolus, excuse me. AKA, she did a lot of shit. Okay, I think I kind of got, like, at least half of that. Yeah, so basically what it was is she found out how, um, like, because you have phenotypes, right? Those are the physical characteristics of the DNA, like, that's the the you know, your brown eyes, my olive skin, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, that's what phenotypes Mm -hmm. are. So in the plants that she was currently looking at, um, there were variations of it. So there were, like, mutations. And she was trying to figure out why is it that these physical characteristics were different from these physical characteristics when these were the parent plants and, like, this is the baby plant, right? Like, these came from these two plants. Mm -hmm. It's really just simply because we, one, didn't know what DNA was at the time, and two, like, our biggest experiment from that point was, like, Gregor Mendel's pea plants, that monk from, like... Huh, yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about that, and I couldn't remember his oh, name. Okay. I was like, I think the last name starts with an M. <laughs> as far as I got. I remember doing those charts in school. Yeah. I mean, like, it, it was. School. it's very... It's something so basic, but she basically filled in a lot of gaps for biological like textbooks because we didn't have that yet and she did that all as an instructor at cornell this was okay. um 1928 to 1935 right she was awarded several postdoctoral fellowships she was achieving international recognition and she was also very not what a woman was supposed to be so professors were not women women did not make discoveries like this mm-hmm. and women also didn't have strong personalities so her time at cornell was running out because people just didn't like her and some of them couldn't even understand her So she jumps over to the University of Missouri, and here she's using x-rays on corn plants, and she discovers the break-fusion-bridge cycle. Blank face on my end. (laughs) If you didn't know this, which you will, it's it's really basic. Cells can be infected by their environment. Again, people didn't know this at the time. It was 1940, so specifically the x-ray exposure on these maize plants affected their chromosomes. Telomeres, which are the ends of the chromosomes, like, you, you know, like a shoelace? Kind of keeps everything. Yeah. So the aglet of the shoelace. I was about to say, I think the name is like an, an agor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, fuck. I only vaguely remember what it is. <laughs> uh, thank you, Phineas and Ferb. It would basically break off or become damaged. And then the chromosomes, regardless of there being damage of the telomeres, would still go on to replicate themselves because they don't know any better. They're not conscious. They're just there to replicate, right? Mm-hmm. So now there's this X-shaped DNA thing with no protective ends. And what does it do? It attaches itself to its sister chromatin. So the X, you see the X in your head? Yes, yeah. Imagine the protective tips of the top of that X broke off. And then okay. the both the left side and the right side of the top part of the X were like, hey, you look like I should attach to you. And they attach to each other and they create kind of like a ribbon, right? Okay. okay. Now in the process of mitosis, the centromeres in the middle, the thing holding the X together, is going to start mm-hmm. being pulled away to the other ends of, like, the uh, the cell. Except the top part isn't being pulled away. Like, it's 
it's still holding on to its other sister chromatid. Yeah, they're still glued they're together. They're still glued together, right? And eventually, there's going to be so much tension and pressure that that particular line, the bridge, what we call it, just breaks. And it almost never breaks evenly. Okay. So it'll break, like, more on one end, more on the other end. We're talking parts of chromosomes attached to its duplicate and on the wrong side of the cell. So, like, if the part that actually held the brown eye color was with the other, like, wasn't where it was supposed to be. So there were two parts of the chromosome that told you about an eye color in one cell and no part of the chromosome that tells you about the eye color in one cell. You're, you're going to have problems. Cell walls are closing and cell one has less DNA than cell two and that's a problem and that entire cycle has been linked to cancer and it's still used in cancer research today because that is a cell that mm-hmm. the body doesn't seem to recognize if it's not correctly constructed. And then the body's like, mm-hmm. wait, is this a foreign body? Like, And then it starts to kind of attack itself. So Our Lady Barbara discovered it because she fried some cornplanes with x-rays. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> right? And here we go again because faculty at the University of Missouri also didn't like her. They respected her, but they were like, she's got too strong of a personality. So she was excluded from events and even mm. faculty meetings. Like, people just stopped understanding her because, again, it's the 1940s. Yeah. And they don't even know that DNA exists. And she's way beyond her time and, like, mm-hmm. super unhappy. So she took an indefinite leave of absence from there and never went back. Oh, jeez. Okay. <laughs> so what'd she, what'd she do? She hopped over to the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in New York State. And there... She discovered transposable okay. elements or jumping genes. Uh, dun, dun, dun. Okay, okay. I didn't know that was a thing. Yes. Is that a thing on a human level? Yes. Or are we still on a corn level? No, that's human level. It's in every uh, organism. So remember okay. when I talked about genetic variation? Yes. There's something else that creates that. So okay. the worm-like chromosomes that I was talking about, not the axes, just the chromosomes themselves, unattached to anything mm. or unreplicated or anything like that, they're actually kind of striped under the microscope. Technically, that chromosome is just a long-ass piece of DNA that was raveled into itself to take less space. So some of those stripes aren't really indicative of anything, but there are some of those stripes that actually do indicate the presence of things called loci or locus in the singular form think of the word location they're just sections of a strand of dna that have been named and identified to carry specific linked genes um so they're just like always on one certain part of a like a chromosome so say one loci on the human's 15th gene uh was known to carry both eye color and that weird club thumb condition called brachydactyl type d Uh, um okay it's that thing that Megan Fox has. If you look at her thumbs, they're, like, clubbed. They're really short uh, and stubby. Um, oh, okay. Also didn't know that. All right. Also, Danny Sexbang has it. Oh, Jesus. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I see I'm pretty where this sure is really coming from. I'm almost positive that the same loci that holds the human's eye color doesn't also hold the condition for the club thumb, but I was just trying to find two genetic things. But say that that was the case. Like, you would always find those two things together, essentially. And you would always find them on the same spot of the chromosome. Some of them can just up and move. Okay. I can't explain it much more to you, but basically, um, 
she found two transposines. She named them A and D. I don't know. They moved around and they created even more genetic variation. I'm getting farther into it. It's like beyond PhD level work. But basically, the movement of the loci is what made people go, I can't listen to this anymore. I don't know what you're talking about. And I think you're insane. But these are things that cause mutations and complete inability to express certain traits. Because it was the 1940s and nobody knew what DNA was, let alone how to watch chromosome swap loci, people were like, you're crazy, you make no sense. Um, she was looked down upon, ridiculed, and she was so tired of hearing that, she stopped publishing around the 1950s. Oh. I know. So she never stopped doing experiments at Cold Spring Harbor. She was there. She lived out her entire life at the women's dorms there. She never married, no kids. Um, 1983 rolls around, and then the rest of the world caught up to her. Funny. Right? Happens. They started to figure out DNA and, like, what mm-hmm. she was meaning by, like, certain chromosomes were being, like, ringed around, causing the inability to express themselves, like, the whole shebang. And they were like, welp. Mm. <laughs> so, like, all that information that fills up all of our biology books are just... Nobody knows her name, but she she basically wrote the cytology like portion and the genetic yeah. portion, and then they awarded her for the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine in 1983. So at least she got recognition, and she technically got international recognition when she was at Cornell. But like the more she did everything, the more they were like they just couldn't handle her. Like they weren't on her same like mm-hmm. wavelength. <sighs> It's got to be frustrating. When she was being asked about how she felt about the whole situation, she says, uh, quote, if you know you're on the right track, if you have this inner knowledge, then nobody can turn you off no matter what they say. Yeah. No, I feel it. I like there was a series of work that I wanted to do for my senior thesis and I like started working on it and my professors were just like, what? But like, I, I since then, I've only added to what I want to do for that series and I'm going to make it. I know I have to switch materials because I want it to be wall pieces in large scale. And yeah. you really can't do that with ceramics. But it's, it's the same thing of like, for whatever reason, that's a compass point that I'm like, I'm going to follow. You got to do it. You're just like, I, it just, that's what feels like it needs to be done. That's what feels like it's right. So you just got to roll with it. Because if you don't, you'll hate yourself. That's no fun. I mean, no, she was just killing it and doing her own thing. And then after she got the award, she was like, okay, I'm going back to do science now. Lived out her life at Cold Harbor and then, like, mm-hmm. died of natural causes in 1992. She was 90. So if you ever, like, staring at a diagram of a cell or, like, trying to figure out genetics, think of her. Well, I did not expect that based off of corn. I was totally off on yep. my guesses. <laughs> I read it. I was like, oh, that's boring. And then I really like genetics. So when I was listening to her, I was reading it. Not only could I understand it, but I was like, yes, this is amazing. Because I'm a huge fucking dork. Uh, uh, that's why we're here. And that's why we have our own goddamn podcast. <laughs> the woman that I'm doing today is also fairly single-minded in her pursuit of work. Kind of similar to your Barbara. Nice. Continuing on my theme of 2020. This episode, we, we're getting the fuck out of the United States. Yay! We are going to France. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we haven't been there in a while. Last season, we covered a few French artists, all of them lesbian, and that is not the case for today. She's not a lesbian? She's not a lesbian. Instead, we've got a mix of Italian princes, nervous breakdowns, and... Jane Fonda. I came across the artist because I was like, I just want something kind of feel good today. 
and I saw the artwork and I was like, cool. And then by the end of my research, I was like, how did I get here? (laughs) (laughs) So, so the one thing bringing all that together is painter and sculptor Nikki D. St. Fallet. And Nikki, she's like best known for her monumental altar sculptures of women. They're voluptuous, they're brightly colored, they're fun. And today, I felt like we needed some fun in our lives. Oh, we definitely did. For sure. Oh, we no, we do. And I mostly succeeded. Like, there's only one content warning coming up. You know, Nikki's life meets the format of troubled early years, but then success from that hardship. So, our Nikki, she was born... About three decades after Barbara. Initially born Catherine, and she was born in 1930 to a very well-to-do French family. Mother was American. Father was an aristocrat banker. She had four siblings, of which two. I know their names, so you beat me on that one. Uh, I mean, aside from that, I have really no idea who her siblings are or what they did. Probably one was an accountant. You know what? Maybe. Why not? (laughs) We can pretend that that's what her brother... um, her brother, John. Let's say he's an accountant. And Pierre. <gasps> Pierre the mime. The one the family does not talk about. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, whether or not they had a son named Pierre, apparently the Great Depression hit the family hard. And that prompted them to move from France to New York City when Nikki was about two. So roughly 1932. Okay. But, like, also... World War II starting to warm up. It hasn't quite hit yet in Europe. So the family also politically preemptively might have seen the writing on the wall and been like, eh, we're leaving. So don't know. Speculative. Even though apparently they were financially hit by the Great Depression, by all impressions I got, Nikki had a privileged childhood. She was enrolled at private all-girls school in New York City, uh, one of which was and still continually is ranked one of the top private schools nationally. And I would hope so because, like, currently their tuition annually is 50 grand. Oh. Currently? Yeah, currently. Oh. They offer pre-K to 12. Oh, God. Yep. Oh. So even though her family might have hit some financial rough times, obviously they were still doing pretty damn well. They were doing great. <laughs> if that's their rough time, like, what was before? I don't, I don't want to think about it. So I would love to have that kind of money. I know, right? And later, Nikki remarked that it was being enrolled at this all-girls private Catholic school that did help shape her into becoming a feminist. Mm-hmm. Nikki, she acted out. She was expelled for painting the fig leaves of statues a bright red on the school campus. And that was the tipping point. They're like, we're expelling you. You're not welcome back. <gasps> Wait, the leaves? They What? <laughs> What did she do before yeah, that? See, I've I don't know. <laughs> Apparently, she was just a really, really rambunctious kid. <laughs> and when that happened, and Nikki was sent to Maryland's oldest all-girls boarding school outside of Baltimore. Oh no! I did not check the tuition of that, but I mean, I'm talking to a very well well-to-do school. Gotcha. And. The insolent behavior that got Nikki sent away from her family, ulterior motive, and one she didn't reveal until she was in her 60s. Okay. All right. So this is where I cue in my content warning. Oh, no. Hey, guys. Quick note. I'm sorry for my audio during Megan's segment. I'm not really sure why I suddenly was so far away. But if it sounds like I'm drowning underwater, 
That's why. There is a content of sexual abuse, so if you want to skip about 15 seconds from the end of the sentence, you should be good to go. Starting at the age of 11, Nikki's father raped her. Oh, no. Yeah. I never thought I'd cover two artists in a season in which that was the case. But that experience shaped Nikki's artwork in later years. And understandably, as as a kid, as a teen, she wanted away from her parents. And so she she did make that happen. That that acting out behavior got her sent literally states away. Now, overall expectations for Nikki, they were also they were very traditional. Nikki resented the fact that her brother was able to attend university while she was groomed to marry wealthy. Like that's what her mother wanted from her. As Nikki put it, quote, achievement as a possible choice for me was denied. I felt jealous and resentful that the only power allotted to me was the power of attracting men. It didn't really matter whether I studied or not, as long as I passed my exams. My mother's desire was that I should marry a rich and socially acceptable man. Seriously? Yeah. Which her sister does end up doing. Well, you know, not every woman can act out. We could hope. Yeah, but I mean, kind of like what you described earlier with Barbara in terms of her parents wanting her to essentially just get married and be a good wife. Yeah. I mean, even though this is 30 years kind of later, it's it's the same thing. It's it's And right now, it's still a thing. It's probably always going to be a thing. Uh, Nikki did not want to prescribe to that. So instead, she eloped marrying a childhood friend after she graduated from school at the age of 17. Nikki assumed a new role as wife and then pretty soon after that, mother. So by the age of 20... She's got a little girl. Nikki would take care of their young daughter and her husband studying literature and music at Harvard. She is also supporting the family. So she was scouted as a teenager for being a model. And so like up until she was 25, she worked off and on as one. So she ended up on the covers of like Life magazine and and Vogue. Yeah, I was looking at pictures of her. She was very like, she had like kind of like that model-esque feel to her. Like she was comfortable in front of a camera. Yes. And I feel like that experience in her late teens definitely shaped how she crafted her public art persona later on. They're very much tied together. A year after their daughter was born in 1952, the family moves from the United States over to Paris. Okay. Nikki's husband is pursuing his music education. She's studying drama. And being in France, like, they do take the opportunity to travel across Europe. Cause, right. You're in France. I mean, why not? You're right there. You're, like, a train ride away. <laughs> and they have the money for it, too. Mm-hmm. They they seem to be comfortably middle class. The following year for Nikki was rough. So in 1953, she's institutionalized after having a nervous breakdown. Oh, no. What do you think caused it? I, I think it was just a culmination of factors that she just had a lot of unaddressed experiences and emotions that she had kept bottled up. I mean, that's just my opinion. And, like, while she was hospitalized, she received a letter from her father, like, apologizing for what he'd done. Oh, fuck off. Oh, like, fuck him so hard. Oh, my God. Okay, don't worry, because later on, Nikki makes an indie film in which she, like, kills the father figure, like, violently. So that ended up being kind of, I feel like, cathartic for her. Yeah, she needed that in her life. But, like, back at the hospital, Nikki's starting to use art as a coping mechanism. And she said about it, quote, I started painting in the madhouse where I learned how to translate emotion, fear, violence, hope, and joy into painting. It was through creation that I discovered the somber depths of depression and how to overcome it. 
That's the, that's really the point of art is just, I don't know, like letting it all come out. I, I remember a comment a professor made in art school that was along the lines of, if you just make art for yourself, like for your own emotional processing, mm-hmm. he was like, well, then it's just art therapy. Oh. Yeah. And I just remember being really put off because like a lot of my work, like it's all inspired by like personal experiences. And I'm like, that's, I was like, yeah, no, I disagree with that. That's not right at all. Yeah. Like, I mean, even like with writing, when I was in writing school, it's like the best writers write about things that they know about. Like, it should be the same with any kind of art. And ideally, the type, you know, it's the type that is so personally vulnerable to you Mm -hmm. as a creator. But then when you release it, it's so universal because so many people can understand that basic fundamental experience. Yeah. Yeah. So Nikki, she tapped into this. And after that experience of being hospitalized, she came out and she was like, cool right? It's set. I'm an artist now. So she went through this really tough moment. And then after that, this is what sets her off from being like an internationally acclaimed artist. How old was her daughter at that point? At that point, she was little. She was like under five. Okay. So, okay. And then, and then soon after, um, she had another one on the way. Oh, okay. Uh, and that, that happens in 1955. And by then they had moved for a little bit to Barcelona. And while there, Nikki saw firsthand the work of an architect called Gaudi. He has these really flowing, organic kind of approach to architecture. There's a big cathedral that he did. And he ended up doing an entire public sculpture garden. Oh. And for Nikki, seeing his work was really influential. After visiting that public park that he designed, Nikki said, quote, I met my destiny. I trembled all over. I knew that I was met one day to build my own garden of joy, a little corner of paradise, a meeting between man and nature. Yeah. And like her art, like her, her like figures, they're also very like loosey and And goosey. Yeah, they're loosey goosey. You know what I mean? They're very like flowy. They are. And it's. It's interesting because she didn't start out that way. And that's the type of work that ends up later on in her sculpture garden. But mm-hmm. it, it did take her a few years for that to happen. To get because, there. I mean, one, she just had to establish herself as an artist. Right. So living in Paris, I mean, Nikki, she already had a head start on that. After World War II, New York City was more the cool kid art scene. But Paris still had a very robust creative scene. And one that was located in a very shitty alleyway. Okay. So about 1958... Nikki's 28. She moves to Ambas Rosen, which is this little alleyway what? with standalone buildings. What? If you go there today, that's like the morgue entrance to a hospital. What? Rent was dirt cheap. The floors were actual dirt. There was no running water or electricity. So, I mean, naturally, like, it's obviously perfect for artist studios. Oh, my gosh. Wait, but her and her two children and her husband lived in that space? No, this is just where she has her artist studio. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. It's like, that's got to be awful. Yeah, and that actually is a little bit of a point of contention later on. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah. So she initially heads there because of a few years prior, Brian Cousy had made that place his studio. And he's a big-name sculptor. He does a lot of wood and marble and very smooth kind of minimalistic geometric forms. Right. Philadelphia Museum of Art has a few pieces of his. Right. And he was such a big name that it attracted other artists there, too. Pretty soon, this little alleyway is just filled with artist studios. 
So tucked into this little side street in the late 1950s, Nikki sets up a studio alongside other leading artists and she starts making. You know, as an artist, like you start with the usual art supplies. You need canvas, plaster, paint, and for Nikki, a 22 rifle. That makes perfect sense. I mean, if you're going to do it, you got to go all in. Wait, is she like... Be like, she... I'm sorry, what did you say about my art? Click, click. Oh, God. I'm trying to figure out how she incorporated a 22 rifle. Is it she just shot at things? Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> now, if he's a little anticlimactic. Thanks, Milana. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was just trying to figure out what artistic, like, approach you could do with a 22 rifle. And unless you put a bunch of 22 rifles in your sculptures... You're probably just shooting things. Which... Yeah, no, she's shooting things right now. She's in the shooting stage of her early career. You know, I, every artist yeah. goes through it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Nikki being self-taught, like, her art doesn't really adhere to traditional academic standards. When she began painting in the hospital, Nikki's work started off as richly colored, very busy, almost like stream of consciousness narratives. Mm -hmm. We got, like, like, characteristic flattening of perspective. And then from the start, Nikki is loading her work with social commentary in the symbolism that she's using. Yeah. And I think a good part of that is just her being raised Catholic. Y'all got some baggage. Yeah. I'm not even going to deny it. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, just the nature of Catholicism. There's so much symbolism and, and um, rituals involved in it. Yeah. You're, uh, you're assaulted with it. For sure. So that influence, that religious background did work into some of her early work. But, like, from the start, like, even though it's really personally expressive, things are also abstracted enough to offer, like, this broader social critique. And one thing Nikki was all about is, like, reoccurring expectations of women. Like, a professor writing about Nikki put it, quote, She made it her redeeming mission to create artworks for and about women and their real, mostly painful experiences. That's the best kind. Yeah. I mean, from the start, she was like, I'm going to tell how it fucking is. So... Basically, like, on male gazing, the female form, which, I mean, you and I were 100% about. And over the years, Nikki evolves in the series of the art that she's making, you know, from painting to performance to monumental art. But it was her early series titled Tear, which is French for shoot, that internationally launched her career. And that's the shooting that you guessed at. What did she shoot? Her paintings. She shot her paintings. Oh, yeah, so she she would prep a large canvas. Uh, she was really fond of found objects and incorporating in, like, whatever she could find. Mm -hmm. And she would kind of paste them on the canvas. So it was kind of dimensional, a little bit of relief stuff. Mm -hmm. Usually would coat everything in white. Oh, no. And then either hang these sacks of paint in front of the canvas. Or sometimes she would embed the sacks, like, within her like relief stuff oh no yeah and then she would stand in front of it and shoot it oh no <laughs> oh no <laughs> oh. so you get these like violent bursts of colors oh, and like as nikki put it like sometimes she like she made that canvas bleed oh my god yeah and the series was performative. You know, she would invite people to come and watch. watch. She would have other people shoot at the canvas. And in one performance in L.A., it said that James Fonda was in the crowd. What? I wish I could say um, she did not get back to me with a comment. Did you actually reach out to her? 
I did not. That would have been really fun. Can you imagine if she even opened an email I sent? Be like, hey, I know you're like James Fonda right now, and you're like getting arrested for protesting like the Trump administration. And, hey, I'm totally cool about that. And yeah, you've been involved in like film and TV productions for decades, but I actually want to talk about someone who's dead and not you. <laughs> Can you tell me about that one time you saw that French artist shoot at a canvas? <laughs> so, yeah, James Fonda did not get back to me for comment, confirming or denying that she was there at a performance piece <laughs> by Nikki. But these were a hit. People really loved them. Yeah. And at that point in the early 1960s, like, abstract expressionism is what everyone is going on about. Right. And part of that is it is it being action painting. I mean, like, action painting was typically done entirely by men you know the idea of just using your physical sense and your physical abilities to like manipulate what's on the canvas it was like a show of strength so like jackson pollock he's the best example oh uh, yeah you know like not just anyone can throw paint at like a 10 by 15 size piece of canvas that's kind of also where we get the idea that in modern art bigger is better really I, you can argue that it started with that kind of idea, that machoism, because the size of it made it exclusionary for other people. Uh, that by the default setting, well, you obviously need to work large and you need to have the money to be able to afford these things uh, and to be able to physically even work with it. I didn't even recognize that. Oh, fuck that's, that. That's kind of a part of it. Oh, no wonder. Because like, I see those yeah. big ass paintings and I'm like, why? Yeah, because especially with abstract expressionism, sometimes the actual design of it, it's very basic. Yeah. And so part of it is because it happens to be like, you know, five feet tall. You're like, oh, that's impressive. Where if you saw it on like an eight and a half by 11, you'd be like, that's a scribble. That's a scribble. (laughs) I like the colors, but it's a scribble. I guess I like what you did with the line work, but. uh... (laughs) I mean, some of it like isn't that bad. Right. I mean, that's also a little bit more subversive aspect of the scale of the art that is still impacted today. (laughs) But I mean, that's another thing. But I mean, back on Nikki, her shooting at her artwork. I think there's a few layers of frustration that she's working into that series. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it just was cathartic. I mean, we're in the thick of the Cold War. There is massive anxiety over nuclear destruction. Mm. And between the States and France, we've got the second wave of feminism coming in and, you know, just championing the idea that women should be equal. (laughs) And then, like, on a personal level, Nikki's, she's feeling that she's not being taken seriously as an artist. Mm. And she also makes a really big personal change by leaving her husband and her two children. Oh, just like, yeah, peace out, I'm done? Pretty much. So, like the other artists in this this little alleyway, a lot of them are living and working in their studios. But Nikki was a little different because end of the day, she'd be like, okay, I got to go home. I got to get dinner ready. I got to take care of my two little kids. Yeah. And so already that made her, you know... I guess there was maybe that impression that she wasn't really one of them. Because she was a mother and a wife, and, like, you can't be a mother and a wife and an artist. That, too, and the fact that she could just go back home to her middle-class, comfortable home. Oh, yeah. Yeah, whereas these artists, you know, these true suffering artists didn't Mm. even have running water. Yeah. Mm. I mean, they obviously had more street cred as artists. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Nikki was dealing with a little bit of that pressure. But it was a studio visit for an American abstract painter that Nikki really made this change. And she said, quote, 
I was mortified because Joan Mitchell didn't take me seriously as an artist. (gasps) For her, I was a married woman who was painting. I didn't have a gallery, so I wasn't professional. Oh, no. Joan fired my ambition and my desire to prove myself to the world by treating me like the wife of a writer. I thought my paintings were just as good as hers and her painting friends, and I also wanted to prove to them that I existed. Oh, okay. So she gave it up. Yeah. She was like, fuck that noise. I, she just kind of had a complete reevaluation and acknowledged that there were a lot of social circumstances during that period that if she wanted to be successful, she needed to change she her needed own personal to, variables. Yeah. She shouldn't have had to. Yeah. And unfortunately, that idea still persists today that you can't be a mother and an artist. You can. It's going to be hard. I mean, just being a mother is hard. Nikki recognized that reality, Mm -hmm. separated from her husband, devoted herself to her studio, and then became an internationally successful artist after that happened. Oh, okay. You know, so she was right. She was. She was. And again, I think it's because she understood the circumstances of the time and, and, and she started playing the game. So... Part of that, too, is also who you happen to know. Yeah. So Nikki became close to a sculptor who was also working in the same area, Jean Tengai, which I am mispronouncing. I am yeah. sorry. Through this sculptor who was working in the same area, Nikki came to meet other leading artists and galleries. And Nikki's sister, the one that married well. Mm, so yeah. she married an art dealer who was the brother of a MoMA curator. Ah. Uh. Here we go. Modern Museum of Art in New York City. (laughs) And through that connection, Nikki was included in a group show at the MoMA in 1968. It's always who you know. It it really is. It's so depressing, guys. Oh, God. I've researched enough for this podcast. I'm like, I got to get my game on. You got to network. Yeah, be like, wait, wait, mom, who's your second cousin? What what magazine or what museum does she work with? Is it the Met? I think it was the Met. It was the Met. What's her name again? Wait, is that real? I know, legit, yeah. Her, like, her second cousin. Why haven't you? I'll have to do some digging. Don't worry. Uh, yeah, if you don't, I will. I'm going to reach out to your grandma. What's your grandma's number? Can you, <laughs> can you text that my way? <sighs> she have a Facebook? <sighs> so it really is all about who you know. And uh, Nikki made that work for her. Like, she was still on good terms with her ex-husband. So through connections with him, she also was able to expand on, you know, being included in shows. It's good that they were still in a thing. I imagine if she, if somebody just left you just to, like, whatever. I don't know. So in the majority of, like, essays they came across her, they made it sound like it was really abrupt. Like, as if she dropped him like a hot potato. Yeah. And then there's one essay, which is pretty awesome, who went into a little bit more biographical detail, who yeah. said they separated and later they divorced and they were still on good terms. Oh, so maybe it was just, like, a long time coming anyway? I think so. I think that was also part of what led up to her nervous breakdown. Yeah. is because she knew she was capable of so much more, and in these new roles as a mother and a wife, she knew she just, there was so much more potential she had. So who took care of the kids? It was him, right? I don't know. I found no details on that. I was wondering. I was, dun, dun, dun. I was like, did, was she almost like an like a aunt that they saw every now and again? Oh god! Like, how did that relationship change? Like, did the did the sister take them on? Oh god! I have no idea. Oh. But I mean, kind of like what we opened up with is she was someone. She did go the mother route, and she was like, "This isn't working for me. No. I can't do this." And she's the first one I've covered who's who did that. Yeah. 
Because most of the time when you have, like, when you're a mother, you, I don't know. So, I mean, like, I'm, it must have been hard for her. So, yeah, I don't, I don't have any firsthand experiences of her writing about that. Researching, I was very curious about that dynamic. But, I mean, Nikki kind of pushed past it and she really focused on her professional career and she, she made shit happen. So, she was showing the United States. She was showing across Europe. Often, she was usually one of the only women like shown alongside other um, French artists who all happen to be working in this new realism kind of movement. And that was basically the polar opposite of pop art, which was happening in the United States. Uh, fucking pop art. <laughs> yeah. I know. So like think Andy Warhol with his really clean, stylish work. Mm-hmm. These like French guys with their new realism that Nikki was taking part in. It was gritty. It was rough. It was very loosey-goosey. And at times it just it wasn't pretty. You're like, oh, this is kind of gross. Like, but it was just hitting on a, you know, the realism, the you know, unpolished reality that we all exist within. So, there's that. So, you know, Nikki's she's showing in Europe. She has her first solo show while she's traveling in the United States in 1964. Now, another aspect of Nikki's success was her acting as a bridge between American and French artists. She's bilingual. She's bicultural. So when artists would travel back and forth, Mm -hmm. Nikki would act as translator and kind of ambassador. And that really opened up the opportunities, who she got to know, and then also who she got to work with later on. Because, like, as a direct result, like, she ended up doing some performance theatrical pieces because of the artists that she worked as a translator for. Oh. So they gave her some in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so they get to know one another. They're friendly. She might be like, hey, I also happen to know so-and-so. I think you're going to love them. And then before you know it, they all ended up collaborating together. That's cool. Yeah. And it really uniquely positioned her within her, like, art world. Because, again, we're still in, like, the 1960s, early 70s. And women are not leading it. Right. So it was kind of her own little, like, niche, her way in. So a really pivotal point in her career came in 1966 when this head honcho curator of the Modern Museum in Sweden reaches out and is like, hey, how would you like to create an installation piece? Yes. You... And two other artists. One of them is Jean, her partner. Right. And it's not that she was working alongside them. She was directing them. Okay. They were making, like, her piece, her work. She was like, okay, you do this, you do this. Yeah. She was like, this is my design. This is what we're going to put together. So what she ended up making is this huge installation piece called She, a Cathedral. She, a Cathedral? Yes, it's a voluptuous female form on her back, 82 feet long, oh. 20 feet high, oh. 30 feet wide, What? weighed six tons, what? Yeah, and viewers entered and exited the piece through the figure's vulva, <gasps> yes. leading them into various rooms contained within this giant woman. What? Yeah, you could go under one of her tits to a milk bar. What? <laughs> Where is this again? It was just an installation piece at the Modern Museum in Stockholm, Sweden. That's so fucking cool. And that's yeah. not anywhere now. I guess they completely... Yeah, it was dismantled after three months. Aww. But while it was up, over 80,000 people came to see it. That's fucking amazing. Yeah. I, Nikki, she described the piece as, quote, a great fertility goddess reclining comfortably in her immensity and generously receiving thousands of visitors, which she absorbed, 
devoured and gave birth to again. Ah, I love it. We're going to make people yeah. really uncomfortable. <laughs> I Well, but it was fun because even though this thing is huge, it's still like brightly colored and patterned and there's lots of different areas uh, to engage in within the piece. Like right. there's places to sit out right. and chill. There's like a terrarium kind oh, of setup. That's so cool. So it was really engaging. Yeah. And like this work is also a good example in a shift in content that was taking place within Nikki's art, but then also highlighting her role with feminism. And that a little fraught socially. Things weren't terribly clean cut with Nikki. Like on one hand, she's pushing these like pro-female gaze, like celebratory like goddess forms in her art that she's starting to make. Uh-huh. But like within the like active feminist discord at the time, she's not an active figure at all. Mm. It really boils down to how Nikki is playing the art game. Okay. So just like she left her family to be seen as a professional artist, you know, Nikki's conforming to social to certain social dynamics in order to get ahead. To get what she wants. And yeah. Yeah. So part of that is pulling from her modeling background. Mm-hmm. Like you comment on in picture, she seems very self-assured, very confident. You know, she gives off like this kind of flirty vibe. And she assumed the role of a sexy, a sexy woman, you know, this this femme fatale of sorts. Like through that sexiness, like she's helping to mitigate the likely perceived threat that she's having towards other male artists. Yeah. The artist we covered last episode, she worked, she was in Mexico, but she worked during a similar period. And she, Maria Izquierdo. She straight up was like, men just see women as competition as an artist. Like, they don't see us yeah. as equals, and they yeah. just see us as in their way. Yeah. Nikki kind of worked with the system. She did. So she was able to sidestep it a little bit because when you're seen as, like, a flirt and cute and sexy, it's, like, enticing mm-hmm. and not necessarily as, like, oh, no, she's a professional threat. Mm, yeah. Be like, oh, no, she's both. Yeah. She's both. She did both those things. (laughs) Yeah. So that public persona she had, I think, put her at odds with what was expected at the time of being, like, a good feminist. Okay. Because she wasn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I mean, Nikki wrote, quote, A man's world seems to give him a great deal more freedom, and I was resolved that freedom would be mine. And in the 1960s and 70s, the art world is very macho. Mm. And Nikki's making an active choice. She's not participating in, like, women's shows. She's participating in, in, like, men's shows and, like, higher, yeah. Yeah, because it was there was a perception at the time that if you're participating in, like, women's feminist shows, mm-hmm. it's not as good as, like, a co-ed show. Mm. But, but at the same time, to get into one of those shows was so hard because they were usually exclusively men, men participating yeah. in them. Yeah. So she was someone who was like, well, I can get into the boys club, so I'm a step ahead, kind of. Yeah. Because she had worked her way into that circle that a lot of people were left out of. So it's a little, like I said, a little fraught with her relationship with kind of 1970s feminism. But, I mean, end of the day, like, she's still using these really pro-feminist forms and ideas in her work. Which is why when I saw it, I was like, yes! Yeah, because they're they're fun. They are really fun. I like them. They're very brightly colored. Yes, and the works that you're describing is what Nikki became primarily known for, the Nana series. The Nana series? Nanas. That's a French term that translates to, like, broads in English. Mm, okay. Yeah, so kind of like a mildly, like, derogatory term for women. But Nikki, like, owned it, and it was a really big shift from what she had been making prior. 
So before these like kind of mother goddess figures, Nikki was making these really aggressive found art, like painted assemblages and sculptures. One of them, there's like this weird bride on a horse, but there's like no face. It's just the veil. It's like life size. (laughs) And you're like, it's made out of like found toys and stuff. And you're like, this is kind of creepy. That's confusing. (laughs) Yeah. So there's like, Kind of this overlay of this harsh social cynicism in these pieces. Yeah. But then Nikki started making these like dynamic and brightly colored mother goddesses. And everyone was like, oh, my God, cool. You should make more of this. And I mean, I'm, and I'm kind of playing into that because yeah. that's what I'm going to kind of talk more about. Yeah. But I think it was kind of the idea that the earlier work she was making was good and really and it was relevant. Mm-hmm. But it was also really heavy. And it was something that they couldn't handle at that time. It's not that they couldn't handle. It's just that that's not as marketable, mm. ultimately, in the end, as, like, feel-good art. Right. And, I mean, we're, we're talking about the feel-good art now because it makes us feel good because it's fun to look at. So these figures that Nikki's making under the series of Nanas, it was inspired after a friend of hers became pregnant. So that kind of, like, voluptuous form. Oh. Like, yeah, I'm going to go with this. Gotcha. And Nikki crafted them as, quote, neither intimidated nor represented by their lives or by men. Yeah. Yeah. They look very free. Yeah. I think earlier with her work, she was still processing a lot about what had been done to her and to women in general. And then with this series, she was like, no. they're Like you said, they're freeing because she's she's looking forward to what... Women are capable. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of that optimism of moving forward. So they range in size and material... The initial batch of them were fairly roughly worked in the late 60s. They were made of chicken wire and fabric that was glued on. Yeah, so Nikki, she was working with kind of whatever she had initially. And then gradually they became more refined. And they also became really big. So some of them, I mean, they're over 10 feet tall. So everything from that to like a, like a stone sculpted one that's like maybe 18 inches in height. That's still big. You're right. It's not like a little four inch no. one. But she, she has a wide range of size, a wide range of materials, but she's always treating them with these brightly, like, abstracted patterns that she's applying, Mm -hmm. and they were a hit. Her pieces, they were incorporated into, like, performance designs in theater and and in the ballet, silkscreened as prints. Some of them are even marketed as, like, into a small inflatable object. (laughs) Why? Yeah, so I think in the 70s, they were really pushing them hard. (laughs) It works for that form, though. It does because of kind of the simplicity of the forms that she's invoking, but it's instantly recognizable as a female figure. And like you mentioned, like they look, they're very playful because they're dancing and they're dynamic and they're moving and some of them are standing on their heads. And so they're just having a good time. Yeah. Moving into the late 70s, Nikki reexamined her priorities. Oh, no. <laughs> she had more priorities. So earlier that decade, she was hit with respiratory health issues oh, no. because of the material she was working with. Oh, she got her hands on some resin? Not necessarily resins, but like the dust from sanding surfaces yeah. and the fumes from some of the adhesives. Oh, why didn't she cover her face? I know. I know. You got to follow those OSHA guidelines. But as a result, she had permanent lung damage. Oh, Nikki. And one of her new priorities was seeing through her dream of creating her own sculpture garden. Uh So 
cue the Italian princes. Oh, right. I forgot. Yeah. I almost forgot about the Italian princes. Almost. <laughs> there was an estate in Tuscany that belonged to a family of the Italian Caraccio princes. Ooh, how many were there? A few. This is a family that dates back like hundreds of years. Huey, Dewey, and Louie, and they're all inbred. Oh my God. What? No? Okay. No. Again, this goes back to who you know. And Nikki was friendly with a family member. And when she offhandedly mentioned that she had this dream of creating a sculpture garden, like the one of Gaudi in Barcelona, so and so was like, hey, we've actually got 14 acres. Do you want to use that? <laughs> you want to do that thing? <laughs> Oh, man. I wish I had that kind of land. Well, you know what? You just got to get better at no- networking at cocktail parties because you never know who might be part of a Italian aristocratic family who just happens to have some property laying around. You know I'm loud enough. I got this. Yeah, you're good. It's me. I'm the one who needs to <laughs> speak up. So she did. I don't I don't know if it was a cocktail party it happened at, but she ended up with these 14 acres and mm-hmm. Nikki was like, great, cool. I'm going to make a sculpture garden based off of cards from a, a tarot deck. Oh, see, I just expected a bunch of those ladies just all over a garden. Well, yeah, but from the tarot deck. So Nikki said, quote, if life is a game of cards, we are born without knowing the rules, yet we must play our hand. So Nikki devoted herself and $5 million to creating sculptures based off of the 22 most important cards in a tarot deck cards known as the major arcana wait where did she get five million dollars well obviously you manufacture your own perfume and then sell it to andy warhol oh sure that's how (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) oh so you had mentioned that part how stupid of me (laughs) (laughs) nikki was really savvy I mean, I think about how she marketed her her Nanas figures as like, mm-hmm. you know, prints and inflatable objects. And when it came time to raise money for her sculpture garden, she, I, I still don't know how this happened. She developed her own perfume, marketed it. And at the launch party, apparently Andy Warhol was there. What? And she raised five million dollars to make this happen. I don't I was That's... presumably over a few years. What? But she had enough to get started. And so she made. Oh, my God. So Nikki and her partner, uh, Jean, he was super influential in making this happen. He was like her right-hand man. So Mm -hmm. Nikki would design what she had in mind, which is a lot of her, you know, voluptuous feminine figures. Mm -hmm. Some of them over 20 feet tall. And he would help do the armature because he did kinetic sculptures. So like engineering was kind of part of his thing. And then they also had local craftsmen that would come in and help build. And they'd use, like, cement and ceramics and glass and did mosaic work. And it's it's huge. Like, her partner described it as their child. Because they worked on it for years. Yeah. And one of the pieces was so large, Nikki actually lived inside of it. What? This, like, sphinx-like figure. Yeah. And it was based off of the goddess card. And so she lived on the second story, and then I guess in one of the um, front feet of the Sphinx, like, that's where the bathroom was. That was her home? 
that was her home while she was living there helping to build oh, her sculpture my garden. God. Yeah. I know. Uh, and and she lived there up until the 1980s. And in 1998, the garden opened up to the public. So if we were ever able to go on an international sightseeing tour for the podcast, we would have to visit her garden. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it looks it it's it looks so much fun. Now, during the 1980s, not only is Nikki working on the garden, and then she's also making like individual pieces of artwork. She's also really involved in AIDS activism. Oh. She she knew a lot of artists, I'm sure, with that, because that was about when it started up, I guess. I don't know. I feel like a lot of the artists that she was working with, it was more of a heteronormative scene. So she, in general, was really socially active in terms of, you know, fighting or being vocal against, like, nuclear energy and women's rights. So I feel like this was just a natural continuation of that desire for equality. I don't necessarily think that she happened to be really intimately acquainted within gay communities uh, at all okay i think it was just something that she knew she was in a unique position she was like i can help make this a little better for sure okay all right so she did so she ended up partnering with a swiss doctor and this happened it was published in 86 and the first aids case wasn't reported until 81 oh. so this is still fairly early because even up into the 90s like here in america people were like what the hell is going on what is this even? yeah <laughs> like it peaked in about 94, 95 here in the States. Yeah. And she co-writes this book with this doctor helping to oversee it. She does the illustrations. And it's, it ends up being translated into six languages. The title of it being AIDS, You Can't Catch It Holding Hands. Oh. Yeah. Because she, she just really wanted to destigmatize just the heavy baggage around contracting it at that being point. Being around it. Yeah. Because, I mean, like, it was big news when Princess Diana, like, shook the hand of an AIDS patient because that was just unheard of. You could catch AIDS. I mean, you yeah. couldn't, but there was still that social stigma. People just swarping down that you could. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the passages that she did, it's really funny. Um, there's a brightly colored snake slithering into a condom with the phrase, it may not be your cup of tea, but it will save lives. Uh, <laughs> yep. Oh no. <laughs> so she, I mean, like her um, mother goddess figures that we've described, she had fun with it. She made it approachable and kind of lighthearted for at times this more serious subject matter. So people were more receptive to it. Uh, by the early 90s, Nikki's partner, he'd passed away. In his memory, she started doing kinetic sculptures, like the ones that he had done. And then not long after his death, she moved to California, and she lived there until her death in 2002 at 71. And it it was the lung damage that she had sustained from sculpting that is what killed her in the end. PPE, bitches! If this week has taught you anything, wear your PPE, your personal protective equipment. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and for sculptors out there, make sure you're wearing stuff with the right particulate filters in it because you need it. Yeah, so so that is Nikki de Saint-Fallet, French, well, French-American sculptor, painter, performing artist, installation artist. She did it all. Not a entirely 100% feel-good story, but hearing about what she had kind of gone through and then how she came out the other side and how art acted as such a transform- transformative way of communicating for her i mean that really stood out to me and it was like you know what that feels good enough we're all going through some shit right now so why not 
Art is such a powerful, like, tool. Like, even if you're a scientist listening to this, like, I don't know. Give, give art some give art some love. Give it a try. Be surprised how it makes you feel. Yeah, I feel like I'm so deep in it. I just was, well, yeah, duh. Some people don't feel that way. As an artist, it's the <laughs> best. <laughs> That's like me telling you genetics is the best. All right, we're going to have some personal disagreements going on. But I'm as just long saying, as you don't like... stray, as long as you don't stray into fucking theoretical physics, we're on good terms. All right? I love you, but that is a bad influence on you. And I don't want you hanging out with those likes. Don't get me started on the philosophers, okay? They're full oh, of it. Yeah, I don't get anywhere near the philosophers. Yeah. Good. All right. Don't want you hanging I like out with my, the wrong crowd. I like my tangible science. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. As a tangible object-based artist, I support this. <laughs> well, as always, guys, if you've made it this far, you guys are pretty awesome. You really are. Thanks for hanging. Yeah. Hearing about art, tangible and sometimes intangible <laughs> science and art. We appreciate it. <laughs> and Milana, if people want to learn more about it, or even better yet, donate to support learning more about it in the future, yes. where can they go? So we have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com. We have an email if you want to reach out to us. It's info at myfavoritefeminist.com. Our Instagram and Facebook are under myfavoritefeminist. Our Twitter is at Milena Megan. That's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. And you can listen to us wherever you can hear a podcast. And please, it takes two seconds to rate, like, subscribe, share with your friends, and in any comment section or even through email, you can let us know what kind of what kind of art or science you do that helps you get through the day or anything that's really super hard. I would maybe open that up to just being how are you coping right now? How are you doing? How are you how are you coping just, with just Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Megan, how are you coping? Just you all know what? the closer mix. we get to the election date the more i swap out my news for audiobooks yeah sometimes i just have to check out and be like all right i got the basics for the day um let's do a murder mystery let's do that that's fun <laughs> uh, my coping mechanism has just been uh picking up my camera again and it looks like you're having fun with it i am yeah i missed it I, I made it simpler for you because I actually understood what the fuck was being said. So you understood what okay. the fuck was being said. Because I wasn't Thank trying you. to explain dark matter to you. Just something I... Oh, fuck. That's so hard. Also, how do you detect for dark matter? So, okay. I imagine, like, maybe a little beeping machine. You turn it on, a little dial, and you're like, okay. All right. And you're like, oh, that's dark matter. That's dark matter. Oh, move it over here. That's dark... Everything's dark matter. Dark matter makes up everything in the universe. You know it's not dark matter? Like, 4%. What's the point? And our existence is meaningless. Completely. We're insignificant little 5% of nothing. Do you need a hug? No, I'm fine. I'm doing good. Okay. Oh, hey.